the headlines on this hump day. Malcolm X gets the X in New York shootout. King James's uncle goes for the throne and hits the floor. And Kurt Eisner's revolutionary career ends with a bang. Plus, coming up, we'll discuss the latest fashion craze sweeping the nation, wearing bubble wrap. Is it pop culture or just a bursting fad? Those are the headlines. Don't blink or you'll miss the news. A news bang, a slice of truth in the pie of lies. And in 1965, on this day in 1965, the world of civil rights and nationalism mourned the loss of Malcolm X. A black activist gunned down mid-speech at the Audubon Ballroom. A passionate orator, Malcolm was known for his fiery rhetoric and even spicier recipes. His death sent shockwaves through Harlem's vibrant community centers, where he had been an inspiration to many. Eyewitnesses described chaos as shots rang out during his speech entitled Who's afraid of a big bad wolf? In the ensuing pandemonium, bystander Clarence Snoop Johnson recalled, I was just setting their mind in my own business when bang, the place went crazier than a Black Panther convention. The gunman remains at large, but police have released a sketch resembling any black man with a grudge and access to firearms. They urge anyone with information to come forward to site, unless you value your life. 1437, King James I of Scotland met his untimely end today at the hands of his own uncle, Walter Stuart, Earl of Athol. The year is 1437, and young James, who ascended to the throne after his brother's suspicious demise in 1406, had already survived 18 years as a pirate's prisoner. The dastardly deed took place in Perth, a quaint Scottish town known for its picturesque River Tay and even more picturesque beheadings. Witnesses described how Uncle Walter lured the unsuspecting king to a secret meeting under false pretenses before plunging a trusty dirk into his royal guts. "'Tis treachery most foul,' wailed one bystander, whose name we can't pronounce. Another onlooker, named Angus McNeep, said, added, "'Aye, it was like Haggis Day at the Evisceration Festival.'" Stuart initially supported James's return from English captivity, but clearly changed his mind faster than Sean Connery's accent. A trial ensued where he was found guilty as charged and sentenced to join his nephew in the Great Feast Hall in the Sky. Or Hell, whichever came first. Itty. 1919. 1919 and it's all kicking off in Bavaria. Socialist sausage muncher Kurt Eisner is shot dead by a far-right nationalist which must have been quite a feat considering they were on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Eisner, who looks like he'd smell of pickles and revolution, had proclaimed the people's state of Bavaria but hadn't factored in getting popped by one Count Anton von Chunderpants III. Eyewitnesses described how Eisner was leaving a meeting at the Sausage and Kraut Club when Chunderpants approached him with a pistol hidden under his cape. Ach, said an eyewitness called Helga Buxom, I thought he was just adjusting his lederhosen. But no, it was murder most foul as von Kunderpants fired several times into Eisner's corned beef sandwich. The shooting sparked off the Weimar Republic, not to be confused with Weight Watchers, which lasted until Nuremberg became more famous for trials than its delicious ring-shaped chocolate treats. 
and so ended the rule of House Wittelsbach, an era best remembered for their love of strudel and accidentally starting World War I by sneezing on Archduke Franz Ferdinand. News bang. The truth will out and it will outlive us all. And now, Shakanaka Giles brings us tomorrow's weather, a veritable tapestry of meteorological marvels and quirks. Tomorrow, the southeast will be damp and dreary, like a wet dog shaking off after a swim. The Midlands will be chilly, a bit like a nudist convention in a walk-in freezer. Scotland will be windy, as if Mother Nature's blowing out birthday candles for the entire Highlands. The north of England will be foggy, much like a drunkard's vision after one too many pints. Wales will be rainy, akin to a leaky tap that just won't quit. And finally, Ireland will be partly cloudy like a politician's promises. Some sunshine, but plenty of grey areas. In summary, a mixed bag of weather, just like life, and that's all the weather. Nineteen twenty nine. In a dramatic turn of events, the Warlord Rebellion in Shandong has been quashed by the National Revolutionary Army. The uprising, led by the eccentric Zhang Zongchang, sought to reclaim territories from Liu Zhenian. However, indiscipline within the rebel ranks proved their undoing. Zhang Zongchang, a prominent figure during the Warlord era, met his end in Jifu District, Yantai, Shandong Province. The nationalist government, under the stewardship of the Kuomintang, held sway over China from 1925 to 1948. For a deeper dive into this historical spectacle, we turn to our correspondent Brian Bastable. Listen to me, for this is a story that you won't forget. The year is 1929. The place is Yantai, Shandong province. A place where bullets fly and blood is spilled like water from a tap. This is the heart of the Warlord Rebellion, a place where warlords like Zhang Zongchang, a man known for his eccentric personality, rule with an iron fist. But today that rule comes to an end. The National Revolutionary Army, the military arm of the Kuomintang, has defeated Zhang's rebel force. The battle rages on and the sound of gunfire fills the air. The ground is stained red with the blood of the fallen, and the air is thick with the smell of smoke and death. But amidst the chaos, there is a sense of purpose. The nationalist government, led by the Kuomintang, is determined to rule China, and they will stop at nothing to achieve their goal. The indiscipline of Zhang's forces has led to their downfall. And as I stand here amidst the carnage, I can't help but feel a sense of awe at the bravery and determination of the soldiers who fight for their cause. This is a story of war and conflict, of power and ambition, and as I stand here on the front lines, I can't help but feel a sense of excitement and wonder. For this is the Warlord Rebellion, a place where heroes are made and legends are born. Brian Bastable, Newsbang, reporting from the heart of the battle. 
1973. In a tragic incident, Libyan Arab Airlines Flight 114 was shot down by Israeli fighter jets in 1973, leading to the untimely demise of 108 innocent civilians. These aircraft, built for air-to-air -air combat and dominance in military conflicts, mistook the passenger plane for a potential threat while it inadvertently entered Israeli-occupied airspace. To delve deeper into the complexities of this unfortunate event, we turn to our correspondent, Ken Shit. Greetings, my fellow degenerates. Let's take a journey back to the year 1973, a time when hair was big, pants were tight, and innocent civilians were being brutally slaughtered in the skies above the Middle East. Libyan Arab Airlines Flight 114, a peaceful plane filled with ordinary people, accidentally strayed into Israeli-occupied airspace, and for that, they paid the ultimate price. Israeli fighter jets, like a pack of rabid wolves, pounced on the unsuspecting aircraft and ripped it to shreds, leaving 108 innocent souls to meet their maker in the most horrific of ways. Fighter aircraft, designed for air-to-air -air combat and establishing air superiority in military conflicts, are meant to be tools of war. But in this case, they were used as instruments of terror, indiscriminately killing men, women and children who had done nothing more than board a plane to travel from one place to another. The world stood by and watched as this atrocity unfolded, and to this day, justice has not been served. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that no matter how far we've come, there are still monsters out there who will stop at nothing to inflict pain and suffering on the innocent. May their souls rot in hell. Pity. 1919. The year is 1919, and the reverberations of the German Revolution echo ominously. Kurt Eisner, the socialist who orchestrated the upheaval, met his untimely end at the hands of a far-right nationalist. Bavaria, the expansive German state, bears witness to the fall of its proclaimed people's state, with Munich and Nuremberg as silent spectators. The House of Wittelsbach, a once-reigning Bavarian dynasty, finds itself in the annals of history. Now to delve deeper into the intricate tapestry of this historical moment, we turn to our reporter, Hardeman Pesto. I'm here in Munich, where tensions are running high after the assassination of Kurt Eisner, leader of the German Revolution. I have with me Count Ludwig von Wittelsbach, descendant of the former Royal House of Bavaria. Your thoughts on these turbulent times, Count? Thank you, Herr Pester. As you know, my family ruled Bavaria for over 700 years before being deposed in 1918. I cannot say I approve of Herr Eisner's socialist politics, but violence is never the answer. And yet some are saying this assassination paves the way for a Wittelsbach restoration. Any truth to the rumours you'll reclaim the throne? I have heard such murmurs among royalist circles, yes, but I must caution patience. Bavaria is still in chaos. We must see what order emerges once the dust settles. But if offered, you would accept the crown? That is not for me to say at this time. My concern now is for stability and unity during this fragile moment. Bavaria must come together, not be divided further. Speaking of division, what will this mean for the rest of Germany? Some worry Eisner's death could derail the whole German revolution. A fair concern. Eisner was, was a controversial figure, but he, he provided leadership. Uh, when it was uh, desperately needed. Without him, more radical elements may vie for power, uh, communists, anarchists, and the like. 
and the Wittelsbachs would be the stabilizing force to prevent such a takeover? As I said, it is too soon to say. But you're not ruling it out. Perhaps a constitutional monarchy. You seem intent on putting words in my mouth, Herr Pesto. I make no claims to the throne at this time. Bavaria must decide its own fate. Back to you, Martin. Cut him off. Nicely done. Up next, Dadaism, destructive art or creative destruction. The movement sweeping Zurich after the Great War. Stay tuned. In 1965, Malcolm X, the charismatic black nationalist and civil rights activist, was brutally assassinated in 1965 while delivering a powerful speech at the Audubon Ballroom in New York City. Malcolm X's vision of black liberation and self-determination within white majority societies continues to resonate profoundly. The Audubon Ballroom, the scene of this horrific crime, has since been transformed into the Audubon Research Park, a part of Columbia University. To delve deeper into the legacy of Malcolm X and the impact of his assassination, we turn to our correspondent, Melody Wintergreen. The Audubon Ballroom, a crucible of civil rights history, where today the air hangs heavy with the echoes of gunshots that silenced one of America's most vociferous voices for black empowerment. Malcolm X, a man who lived by the sword of words, has fallen by the sword of violence. As the ballroom now stands silent, it's as if the very walls mourn the loss of this fiery orator. Witnesses say Malcolm X was just moments into his speech when chaos erupted and a fusillade of bullets cut short his vision for a future where black Americans could rise, phoenix-like, from the ashes of oppression. The crowd's screams were not just in terror, but in anguish for a leader lost. The reverberations of this assassination will be felt far beyond the blood-stained podium. They will ripple through time, challenging future generations to pick up the baton dropped so tragically here today. As Columbia University transforms this site into a beacon of research and learning, one can only hope that it will also serve as a testament to Malcolm X's unyielding pursuit of justice and equality. And so, from this hallowed hall where dreams and dreamers meet their end, we remember a man who gave everything to uplift a people and in doing so became immortalized in the annals of American history. Newsbang, the daily antidote to the virus of ignorance. Ebrim, just as 1878. Calamity Prenderville now delves into the annals of history to celebrate the birth of the telephone directory, a quintessentially British innovation that transformed the way we ignore unsolicited calls. Good evening, Newsbangers. Calamity Prenderville here to bring you a blast from the past. Today we're celebrating the birth of the Telephone Directory, a British innovation that revolutionised the way we ignore unsolicited calls. Imagine the scene. It's 1878 in New Haven, Connecticut, and the local yokels are in a tizzy. Why? Because the first telephone directory has just been issued to 50 subscribers. That's right, folks. 50 whole people. It's a listing of telephone subscribers in a geographical area, or as we like to call it, a phone book. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. Calamity, how did our American cousins survive without a list of numbers they'd never use? Well, let me tell you, it was chaos. Dogs were walking on their hind legs, children were playing with fire, and women were wearing trousers. It was madness. But fear not, for the British stepped in to save the day. Using their legendary knack for organisation and their love of paper, they created the Telephone Directory. It was a masterpiece, a tome of epic proportions filled with names, numbers and the occasional doodle of a steam engine. The directory was a game-changer. No longer would people have to remember their own phone numbers. No longer would they have to engage in awkward small talk when they accidentally called their neighbour. The telephone directory was a beacon of hope in a world gone mad. So, let's raise a glass to the humble telephone directory. A true testament to British innovation. And remember, if you ever find yourself in New Haven, Connecticut, be sure to give 50 people a ring. You never know, you might just make a friend. That's all from me, folks. This is Calamity Prenderville, signing off. Stay ridiculous. News bang. Unleashing the hounds of truth on the bullshit brigade. Sandy O'Shaughnessy, your jovial guide to the eccentricities of history, presents this segment. With humour and a touch of the absurd, he recounts tales of kings, conspiracies, and unexpected scones. Ah, and a hearty good evening to you all. It's your old friend Sandy O'Shaughnessy here, stepping in to guide you through the twists and turns of history with a dash of humour and a sprinkle of the absurd. You know, I, I've always said that history is like a good Irish stew. It's best enjoyed when it's simmered with a bit of love and a pinch of the unexpected. <laughs> now let's take a little trip back to the year 1437. Picture it, if you will. The rolling hills of Scotland, the River Tay flowing gently, and the city of Perth bustling with life. But amidst all this beauty, there's a storm brewing. King James I of Scotland, the youngest of three sons, had quite the journey to the throne. <laughs> After his brother's suspicious death, James found himself in the hot seat. But it wasn't all smooth sailing. He was captured by English pirates and spent a whopping 18 years in the clink. I'd say that's enough to make anyone a bit grumpy. <laughs> now you'd think that after all that, James would be able to kick back and enjoy his reign. But, as they say, when it rains, it pours. Enter Walter Stewart, Earl of Athol, James's uncle. At first, Walter was all smiles and support, but as we all know, appearances can be deceiving. And in this case, they certainly were. Walter conspired in a failed coup, resulting in the assassination of poor King James. Talk about a family feud. Ah. <laughs> I received a letter from dear old Mrs. O'Leary in County Cork, who writes, Dear Sandy, my husband's been acting strange lately. He's been muttering about crowns and conspiracies. Do you think he's planning a coup? Well, Mrs. O'Leary, I'd say keep an eye on him and maybe hide the silverware just to be safe. Ah. <laughs> now, all this talk of kings and coups can be a bit heavy, but fear not, for I've got a little light-hearted tale to share. <laughs> you see... On my way into the studio today, I bumped into none other than Seamus O'Reilly, the local baker. And as luck would have it, he'd just baked a fresh batch of scones. But these weren't just 
any scones, they were shaped like tiny crowns. So I did what any self-respecting historian would do. I grabbed a handful and made a dash for the studio. And let me tell you, they were fit for a king. Ah. <laughs> so as we wrap up this little journey through history, let's raise a glass or a scone to the unexpected twists and turns that make our past so fascinating. And remember, dear listeners, history may be full of drama, but it's the little moments of joy that truly make it worth remembering. Ah. <laughs> Until next time, keep those letters coming, and as always, see you later, alligator. In a while, crocodile. This is Sandy O'Shaughnessy, signing off. Hello there. Nineteen fifty-eight. The year is nineteen fifty-eight, and the peace sign, an emblem of tranquillity, has been conceived by British artist Gerald Holtom for the campaign for nuclear disarmament. This group champions nuclear disarmament, stricter arms regulation, and rallies against the employment of nuclear, chemical, or biological weapons. The peace sign, a fusion of semaphore signals for N and D, symbolizes nuclear disarmament and it also pays homage to Goya's painting, the 3rd of May, 1808. And the story of the peace sign continues, as our culture correspondent, Smithsonian Moss, delves into the design and impact of this powerful symbol. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, culture vultures. It's your High Priestess of Pop, Smithsonian Moss, and I'm here to drop some knowledge bombs on ya. Let's wind the clocks back to 1958 when the world was black and white, and the milkman still thought he had a chance with your grandma. So there's this British bloke, Gerald Holtam, right? And he's like, you know what the world needs? A symbol that screams, let's not blow ourselves to kingdom come. And bam, he whips up the peace sign for the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Yeah, that's right. The same sign your auntie throws up at family gatherings after one too many sherries. But get this. The peace sign isn't just a trendy doodle for your notebook. Oh no. It's a combo of semaphore signals for N and D, standing for nuclear disarmament. That's right, semaphore. The flag-waving thingy sailors use when they're not swabbing the deck or singing shanties. And for all you art snobs out there, Holtam's peace sign is also a nod to Goya's painting, the 3rd of May, 1808. You know, the one with the dude about to get his lights shot out? Real cheery stuff. Now, the peace sign is like the Swiss Army knife of symbols. It's been slapped on everything from protest banners to bell-bottoms. It's the go-to for hippies, hipsters, and your history teacher who still thinks Woodstock 69 was last weekend. So next time you flash the peace sign for a selfie... Remember Gerald Holtam and his quest to keep the world from going kaboom. And to the campaign for nuclear disarmament, keep fighting the good fight. Because let's face it, nobody looks good in radioactive green. That's it for tonight's Blast from the Past. Stay tuned for more cultural craziness with me, Smithsonian Moss, the only reporter who brings you the news with a side of sass and a dash of pizzazz. Peace out. News bang, unraveling the tangled web of deceit one fact at a time. And just time to glance at tomorrow's headlines. 
The Guardian. Accidental carnage, US bombs Dutch civilians. The Independent. Bahraini streets swell with outcry over seven fallen. Is it enough? The Times. Christchurch shaken, quake toll rises, billions in ruins. And the sun tiddlywinks champion chokes on wink. That's it for tonight. On the day the man who stole a clock is still doing time. Good night, and may your news be as sensational as your dreams. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.